Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show on the SOT Radio Network, where we expose the lies and emphasize the truth about health in our modern world. Hey everybody, today is uh, November 20th, 2015. Um, welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Jonathan, I'll be your host for today. Joining me in our virtual studio from all over the planet, we have a full complement of hosts today, Doug, Erica, Tiffany, Gabby, and Elliot. Welcome everybody. Hello. Hey. Hi. Hello there. All right, so we've got a, uh, we've got a good topic today. Um, we're going to be taking a deeper look at psychology uh, and how we can stay sane when it seems that all the forces around us are trying to make us do the opposite, uh, looking at all the insane world, uh, things that are going on in the world today and how to kind of preserve our mental health. Uh, we thought that this would be a good topic uh, to approach, especially considering the recent uh, attacks that happened in Paris and obviously all of the other attacks uh, that are going on um, in Lebanon, uh, the ongoing situation in Palestine, uh, the situation with police in the United States, uh, situation with, you know, PSYOPs and the media. And I mean, there's, there's so many things that are taxing our ability to just keep a level head. And so we wanted to talk about that from a health perspective and um, see how we could keep our heads on straight, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um <clears throat> So let's let's start out with a little bit of uh, connecting the dots. We got a couple articles here to get us into the flow. Um, Erica, do you want to start us off with this article about uh, police and uh, immunity from prosecution? Yeah. So in the news in the last week, um, actually November fifteenth, two thousand fifteen, on the World Socialist website. There was an article called Immunity for Killer Cops, thank the U.S. Supreme Court, and um, it was actually really kind of concerning. Uh, Basically, you know, as the death toll from police brutality is mounting and we see videos daily of um, all the different things that are happening, all the violations of civil rights and human rights by the U.S. police. there was basically this Supreme Court issued a decision expanding the authoritarian doctrine of what's called qualified immunity, which shields police officers from legal accountability. So when a civil rights case is summarily dismissed by a judge on the grounds of what's considered qualified immunity, the case is legally terminated. It never goes to trial Mm -hmm. before a jury and is never decided on its constitutional merits. In this particular article, they talk about the Luna versus Mullenix case, in which case a police officer fired from uh, on-ramp of a freeway at a car that was being chased at 85 miles per hour, and he basically shot and killed the driver, even though he was told um, by a superior officer not to shoot. And so this case was brought to court by... um, the Lydia's family members who claim that Mullenix used excessive force in violation of the Fourth Amendment um, of the Bill of Rights. And the district court that originally heard the case, together with the Fifth Court Circuit Courts of Appeals, denied immunity to Mullenix on the grounds that he, his conduct was violating clearly established laws, meaning he wasn't in any sort of danger. And um, 
it was interesting because the Supreme Court intervened to uphold the Mullenix's entitlement to immunity. So basically mm-hmm. a decision that will set a precedence for the summary dismissal of civil rights lawsuits against police brutality around the country. Um, this, you know, the Supreme Court is, uh, this case is a, a response to the ongoing wave of police mayhem and murder. And the message is clear, according to the author, the killings will continue. Do not question the police. If you if you disobey the, the police, you forfeit your right to life. And basically, the media largely um, didn't even cover this. You know, they remained silent about uh, this pro-police Supreme Court decision. And then back in October, on the 23rd, the FBI director, James Comey, stated, may God protect our cops. He went on to accuse those who filmed the police of promoting violent crime. And meanwhile, in virtually every police brutality case that has come before the federal courts, the Obama administration has taken the side of the police. And for those who may not know this idea of qualified immunity, reactionary doctrine invented by judges in the latter part of the 20th century to shield public officials from lawsuits. As a practical matter, this doctrine allows judges to toss out civil rights cases without a jury trial. And if in the judge's opinion, the official uh, misconduct in question was not plainly incompetent or, or a knowing violation of clearly established law. So in recent decades, the doctrine has been uh, stretched to a Kafkaesque portion, and basically it shields police officers from uh, any accountability. So it's it's actually really quite scary because in this Luna versus Melanix case, this man was just outright murdered. I mean, Mm -hmm. maybe he was breaking the law, speeding. But there will be no protection, you know, for his family or and really not even addressing the issue, you know. And it, it's it's very concerning. Well the thing that took me off about that particular case was that the justice in that case ruled that the cop didn't use deadly force because he was aiming at the car. He wasn't aiming at the victim. He just happened to shoot the victim and aiming at the car. <laughs> It's it's crazy that I mean that that alone is one of the basic tenets of, of gun safety. You know, is to uh, mm-hmm. to know your target. You know, and so these are supposed to be trained officers. You know, to me, trained means trained. There's not really a lot of ambiguity there. Um, of course, people make mistakes, but mistakes are one thing, and egregious mistakes that result in someone's death are another. I think um, this this whole thing has been really interesting to me too, because, you know, there, I've, I've known some cops, and I do currently know some cops, um, and I know that there are some good cops out there. Um, honestly, not many, but there are. Um, <laughs> and there are there are also, uh, there are dangerous people in the world. It's not like the world is, like, totally cushy, cuddly, safe place. Um, so, you know, there, there needs to be some uh, addressing of, like, the dangerous situations that, that police find themselves in. However, the big caveat to that is that like when they get into situations where, and which we've seen happening over and over and over again, especially recently, 
uh, is where they kill innocent people. And there's no recourse. There's no nothing. I mean, there has to be some sort of a system in place where, you know, if if a police officer is found to be either, like, egregiously mistaken or outrightly psychopathic, uh, you got to get rid of them, you know. Mm-hmm. They, they should be kicked off the force at the very least, at the very least, if not prosecuted for murder in a lot of these cases. So it, it's really, um, I mean... Unfortunate doesn't really cut it, but that's the first word that comes to mind. Yeah, what yeah. was concerning is that, like, in the article, it talks about how Mullenix wasn't even in, in any danger, mm-hmm. and the supervisor told him to wait until o- other officers tried to stop the car using strip spikes, and he, he fired four shots, and then he boasted, how's that for proactive? Mm-hmm. You know, so that yeah. it, it was like a plan, you know? The other scary thing, at least for me, is that since the media didn't cover it, so most people don't know about it. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, I mean, there's absolutely no consequences in these situations. Like, I mean, this cop knows that despite the fact that he was told to wait, well, you know, there's not going to be any consequences if I actually just, you know, am proactive and kill this guy. So, I mean, you know, if, if, if there's so much precedence now for there being absolutely no um, consequence for cops taking these actions. So, you know, if you're a, a psychological, psychologically deviant cop, you know, why not do it? There's no, there's no consequence. Well, there should be yeah. a system in place to protect citizens. And when I say mm-hmm. should, but this is an insane world, so everything is just backwards and twisted, so there is no protection. I mean, even if a citizen files a complaint or sues the police department for excessive force, um, they can sue, but the police department doesn't suffer any consequences. Whatever money they get comes from the taxpayers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And they're a pretty hardcore, you know, brotherhood too. So they they often uh, protect their own, um, mm-hmm. and you know, they cite the uh, the classic movie Serpico. If anybody has ever seen that one, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, obviously that's a that's a film, uh, but it, it happens in mm-hmm. in real life. They, you know, the cops will band around uh, each other, and even if one of them has made an egregious mistake or outright murdered someone, um, they'll protect mm-hmm. that officer in order to protect the force mm-hmm. as a whole. Well, that, that, comes that, fear, that fear tactic, you know, that don't question the police, you disobey the police, you forfeit your life, you know? I mean, that's yeah. really the precedent that's being set. And and it's using that fear, you know, if you speed, you know, this, this could happen to you or, or any number of scenarios. It, it creates that sense of fear all the time. And it's that it's that gang mentality um, that came through in um, in the FBI director's speech when he went to say, um, "May God protect our cops," mm-hmm. um, rather than than stating, you know, uh, "May May God protect the innocent" or something like that. He he, mm-hmm. he explicitly says cops, and um, I I think I think it's insane how. Firstly, what, what they tend to do is they um, they outright deny that this pre- police brutality is a crime in and of itself. But then, mm. secondly, 
to make it worse, they um, they're attempting to um, to accuse those who film it, who who document it, and who um, who, who try to gather evidence of this brutality. They accuse those people of promoting violent crime. <laughs> Which is ridiculous. Well, then, uh, it's, it's like you can see at large is the real enemy and the cops are like the good guys quote. That mm-hmm. is it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Well if that were the case, if the people who are filming it were promoting violence, I mean where did they get the violent footage? The police provided it. <laughs> so their only crime is to promote it on YouTube? Is that mm-hmm. is that what they mean? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, because in we most of the places where change. the uh... go ahead, Ted. We have to consider too, like the type of people that are drawn to positions of authority and power in the police forces in the first place. I mean, people who, you know, just easygoing guys. I say guys mostly because most cops are men, but uh, they don't want to, you know, tell people what to do. They don't get off on, you know, the power of it. So. Police forces in general attract a certain type of mentality to the force. Mm-hmm. And there was one article that was carried on site a long time ago. Uh, somebody who tested really high IQ-wise could not get on the force because they, the police force thought that he would become bored and lose interest <laughs> in the job. So they specifically recruit people mm-hmm. who aren't that bright. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> like you have to yeah. recruit anyone to qualify. <laughs> It's it's true. I actually have a friend who's taken that exam. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Thousand, oh, th- more than a thousand people have been killed by the police in America. And what what we're in November, you know? Yeah, there is no war on cops. It's a war on people. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And that, like Tiff, like you had mentioned, you know, to the topic of our show about the insane world. I mean. You can look into the history of police and look back to, like, the Pinkertons, you know, around the turn of the century, and uh, I think you can make a pretty valid argument that the police have never actually been here to protect people. That's not to say that certain cops don't want to. That may be their personal Mm -hmm. intent. Um, But in the general consciousness, uh, you get in trouble, you get broken into, or whatever you call the cops, they come over, you know, they help, they protect and serve. Mm -hmm. And that is that is no longer the case. I mean, it might be the case in like some rural areas. Um, I, I guess I'm still trying to kind of do the devil's advocate thing, but you know, mm-hmm. as, as we saw recently with this article, um, which uh, some of our listeners probably saw from Santa Monica, there was a uh, African American woman who had to get a locksmith to get into her apartment, and her neighbor called the mm-hmm. cops, thinking that you know this this black lady is breaking into somebody's apartment. Uh, and you know, nine, what did she say? Nineteen cops showed up. Yeah. For one, for one B and E, which is insane. That is insane. And of course, yeah. she had to explain at gunpoint that she actually lived there. Uh, it's it's mind blowing. Yeah. Another mind blowing example: a SWAT team arrives at a house of a woman who refused to give an antipsychotic to her daughter. You know. I'm a very mm. small child. First of all, it's like there's no medical indication of antipsychotics in such cases. She refused to give antipsychotic, and she was, you know, she was being ordered, you know, to have her child taken away from her. They, the SWAT team arrived. They were taken to jail. It was, you know, 
it's news items that we see more often and more often. Yeah, there's been several stories of people or families who have called cops on suicidal family members, and the cops show up and they end up killing the person. So it's just, yeah. it's it's crazy. And I would yeah, even I argue and say that uh, cops do not protect and serve. I don't, in my opinion, I don't see much protecting going on. I don't think the cops actually yeah. prevent any crimes. Maybe they do on a small scale, but crimes happen. Somebody calls the cops, and the cops come, and they take down the information and allegedly yeah. look for the perpetrator in most cases. I don't yeah. hear much about cops stopping anything from happening. Yeah. I think it's really just um, it's just a case of don't call the police. <laughs> in America yeah. anyway I think that's just mm -hmm. the best thing to do because as as you guys have said um, the amount of times now that people um, people call the police over really um, small small things uh, like uh, I don't know um, I, I can't think of any examples in my head but there's been so many occurrences where the police have just shown up uh, and essentially killed someone who's innocent for, for not really doing anything wrong whatsoever. So I, th I think nowadays the best thing to do is just to stay out of their way and not even contact them, you know? Yeah. And if you see a bunch of police, if you see a bunch of police congregating around a house or a business with their lights flashing, like, get out of there. <laughs> That's what I think, you know? Run. Yeah. <laughs> it is really insane. Yeah. yeah. Unlock up right, the dog, so, too. Yeah, yeah. no yeah. kidding. Yeah. I know. There's been too too many cases of that. Um, yeah. You know, I, I know dogs can be vicious, but, I, you know, I've been bit by a pit bull, and it was bad, but it wasn't that bad. I, I, I didn't need to shoot it. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, so, you didn't think your life was in danger, Jonathan, as all these cops say? No. Oh, my life was in danger. I had no other choice but to shoot. No. I I thought I needed to get some peroxide. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and a and a band aid. But <laughs> anyway. So let's move on a little bit in our topic and kind of along the lines of what we were just talking about, um, these like low expectations of the police that we kind of have to have now. We're you know it's yeah, as as is evident. Um, Doug, you want to do this article about pessimism, a recipe for life? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so this was an article uh, published on SOT on November 4th. Um, originally, it was on Natural Blaze, written by uh, Heather Callahan, called Pessimism, a Recipe for Life. So the article is, it, it's mainly a video, um, and I recommend uh, anybody uh, find the video. It's just a short one. It's only uh, two and a half minutes, um, and it's called The Wisdom of Pessimism. And it basically uh, kind of just lays out that uh, a lot of times we're encouraged to have this kind of optimistic outlook, um, you know, by the media. Uh, a lot of that is through advertising, you know, like, uh, well, buy this product and your life will be perfect or, all, you know, that's essentially the message that you end up getting. They also talk about how uh, technological process, uh, progress kind of leads people to be very optimistic about things, but that, you know, it's not really a, a realistic outlook um, on things. And, uh, you know, it's calling it pessimism, but I think really in a lot of ways it's, it's, it's being more of a realist. 
you know, actually looking at things from a perspective that, you know, not everything is going to turn out for the best, um, you know, despite the fact that that's often the, the message we're given. And I know in a lot of uh, new age circles and things like that as well, they often will promote this kind of positive thinking and that, uh, oh, positive, you know, the importance of positive thinking. And you have to always kind of put a positive spin on absolutely everything. Well, this article is basically saying that, uh, you know, you, you actually um, are in a better position if you do have more of a pessimistic outlook, if you do kind of have, um, you know, at least kind of keep in mind the possibility for negative things, for everything to fall apart, because then you're much more likely to have contingency plans. Um, you know, you kind of, it's the, the old adage to um, hope for the best but expect the worst. You know, because then you're kind of like hoping that things are going to turn out um, as best as they could, but you're going to take steps to um, prepare for uh, things not turning out well. Um, so, yeah, she the the author of the article says um, she believed that fear, uh, the lack of self-acceptance and self-love, uh, led to her getting cancer and and oh sorry I'm reading the wrong sentence here sorry she was she was actually um, looking into uh, a, a person who uh, named Anita Murjani who um, actually had a near death experience and she came back from that experience um, kind of with this wisdom and talking about how pessimism can be um, uh, kind of uh, uh, lead to kind of a more um, realistic outlook of of what's surrounding you. And she believed that fear, the lack of self-acceptance and self-love, led her to getting cancer um, and initially dying. So she kind of came back from that um, with a with a wider perspective on things. Anyway, it's a very interesting article. I recommend people kind of uh, check it out. That is, that makes me think of the. Uh, there's a set of anticipations, and um, <clears throat> I remember seeing this in our forum a while back. That it was. Uh, and I forget exactly, there was negative anticipation of a negative event, positive of a positive event, positive of a negative, and negative of, of a positive event. And so it was all these different types of anticipation that you can have. And um, I think that the best was essentially positive anticipation of a negative event, which means you prepare for the worst and hope for the best, simply put, you know, mm -hmm. um, so that, you know, if you have uh, – Kind of, you you can hope for the best while still being ready for things to go wrong, and you know see this a lot throughout people's day to day lives. And I think that this could be considered a mental health issue. That like, you know, if you spill your coffee on the newspaper, or you know, if your cat poops on the floor, or whatever, there's, you know, these like small annoying kind of quote unquote bad things that happen um, cause extreme emotional upset. Um, there's an imbalance there, and uh, you know. You can even look at more extreme events, you know, that happen in people's lives, obviously not just including, you know, death, but, uh, you know, losing your house and things like that. And obviously that's a traumatic thing to go through, but um, there is a way to approach these situations so that you can retain your mental stability throughout them. Um, and mm. we'll talk about that a little, a little bit more, I think, later in the show. Um, so let, let's, uh, let's kind of jump into our topic here uh, today. So, as I said in the beginning, we kind of wanted to address, um, based on, you know, the recent attacks that have happened in Paris and the explosion on social media of, you know, kind of outpouring of uh, armchair activism um, and things like that, uh, and, and people looking at this one situation and becoming filled with fear without realizing that it's happening everywhere else. 
for instance, you know, Boko Haram uh, is is one of the most you know quote unquote dangerous organizations right now. They've they've killed many many people, and barely anybody knows who they are. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, uh, most people, and I hate to say this, but ignore the situation in Palestine that's been ongoing for many 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 years. Um, you're talking tens of thousands of, of Palestinians that have been killed uh, since the uh, since the establishment of the state of Israel there. Um, and as we were talking about the situation with the police in the United States and in Europe um, and all of these things, like how do you keep your head on straight? Uh, mm-hmm. And I guess uh, I'll, just to start off the discussion, I'll, I'll start with an example for myself and see if you guys want to chime in with your own examples. I, I've noticed, and I really hate to admit this, it's, it's frankly kind of embarrassing, but I've noticed that when I see things online, um, say, you know, somebody was killed by a cop or uh, like what just happened, there was a, there was an attack in Paris. And uh, I am sympathetic uh, and empathetic towards the, the dead and the families of those people. And at the same time, I can't help but notice in myself a feeling of like, meh, you know that that's what happens mm. now. Um, mm-hmm. That's just the way the world. That's the way the world is yeah. now. And you know, let's go on to the next thing. And um, you know, whatever. When it should it should be really infuriating. Uh, it should be really sobering. Um, it should be all these things. And yet, I like I said, I can't help but notice in myself a, a feeling of uh, of apathy towards these these really awful things that are going on in the world. And that kind of scares me. I'm like, yeah, well, why am I feeling this way? And I think that a lot of that has to do with, um, you know, the desensitization that's going on uh, through all our forms of, of media and through the kind of psyops and propaganda that are being put out there. I wonder if you guys had any similar sort of feelings, if you noticed the same thing, or if you have other reactions to it. Yeah, there is definitely a certain level of detachment there. I mean, when you open up your news feed and you're bombarded with all these uh, these negative stories and all this kind of thing, it's kind of like, it, it's almost like your brain is like, well, I could be overwhelmed by this, or I could kind of put this in the the category of things that happen but not to me. And uh, you know, you kind of um, you kind of switch off on that level because it's almost like uh, emotionally overwhelming. There's there's just too much to kind of deal with. I mean, part of that is just. Uh, in our modern kind of technological world, we're in touch with so much more that's going on in the world. Um, and, you know, when you go, you go outside your front door, you go to work and all these kinds of things, like, you know, your day proceeds normally. Um, you don't, you aren't confronted with all these crazy um, events. Um, so it, it's kind of like there's a, there's a real disconnect there between kind of these, these crazy events that are going on around the world and, and what's actually going on in your backyard. Yeah, I completely agree, um, especially looking at SOT every single day, um, seeing how this stuff just um, terrible things happen on the on the world pretty much every day now. And, um, and if you keep up to date with it, I mean, even for the normal person who doesn't keep up to date with everything. But I, I've definitely noticed that myself as well. It's like... Um, you become you become desensitized and it, 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 there's like a normalization you know it's like uh it's like accepting okay this is the way that the world is but i think that's that's also one of the reasons why it is so important to um to keep up to date and to 
to constantly sort of subject yourself to this horrible, um, horrible information um, is because I guess it, um, it, it, it can act as a reminder, you know, but you can use it in two different ways. Uh, I think you can use it as a way to, um, to stay awake and to, and to, and to become more aware of what's going on in the world. But then, um, then if you if you're not if if um, if you don't pay attention, it can easily just just uh, just fall into the sort of um, ah well you know this happens, but uh, it's not happening to me, so um, I'll go on to whatever I'm going to go on to, <laughs> you know. Mm. Does that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a balancing yeah. act between what you can do. If you're looking at SOT every day or working on SOT every day, what you can do to keep from falling into an abyss of despair and what you can do to just keep carrying on and doing what you have to do. And I think in a lot of ways that we owe it to the people who are suffering around the world to actually just bear witness to what is going on and presenting the truth in the best way that we know how to do it um, just so other people can see. And I think in a lot of ways it's, you do have to develop a bit of detachment, but it also serves as a protective kind of thing. Um, like Doug said, you know, these kind of things happen, but they don't happen to me. But there's going to be a time, maybe, in the future, some people say if, some people say when, when all of these things are going to come, you know, to get really, really personal for you. And if you can read other people's accounts, if you can know what to expect in a way, it kind of takes away some of that shock factor so you're more prepared when things start to go south, you know, around you and people that you actually know personally. Mm-hmm. Well, I think yeah, uh, there was a- part of well, – I, I was just going to say, I think part of what the, the crazy-making aspect of this is the, the cognitive dissonance of the things that are thrown at us. Um, Like one of our chat participants here says, uh, I've been feeling a lot of anger about what's going on. Um, And that I think is a a healthy emotion. I think anger is is quite a healthy emotion. Um, Mm -hmm. But what I think is interesting is that, uh, you know, what we should be feeling is is anger. And yet we find Mm -hmm. in a lot of people, um, this cognitive dissonance of uh, apathy and fear at the same time. And so you're mm-hmm. desensitized to the things that are going on, uh, and you're like, oh, well, that's just the way the world is now. Um, and at the same time, you're very fearful. Uh, and so that's why, you know, like it's been in the news recently in the United States that, that many states are um, turning away Syrian refugees because they're afraid the terrorists are going to come into their state. You know, and mm-hmm. so people have this this overblown um, sense of fear about things like, well, don't, you know, it, it, that's just what happens now, but it doesn't happen to me. It happens out there. Don't let it come close to me. And if it does come mm. close to me, I'm going to have this overblown reaction and uh, all of, you know, any kind of latent uh, hatred towards groups, races, people, anything like that is going to come to the surface. Um, and hatred doesn't have to be an overt, you know, action of violence or anything like that. It, 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 hatred mm-hmm. can simply be. I don't, I don't trust you because of what I think about your group, you know. Um, <clears throat> so it's, it, it, that's what I think is it, crazy making about it is that people are, 
uh, presented with these uh, different ways of, of feeling, and they kind of feel them all at the same time, but they don't know how to process them. And they probably feel anger under the surface, but don't know mm-hmm. how to process that either or how to let it come to the surface or how to, you know, um, how to manifest it in a, in a healthy way. Um, yeah, you know, I think that's a big part of it. Yeah, the, I, I think that part, a lot of it is the, um, the, the, the way that uh, information is presented to people as well. I mean, in the media, you're never given kind of the whole story. You're never given everything from all angles or anything like that. It is really um, presented as these random acts that kind of uh, lead to, um, you know, these, these terrible, ra- it's like it's, it's almost there's this element of randomness to it. And it's kind of like they, you know, it, it really is promoting this idea of fear that, uh, oh, my God, look what randomly happened. This could happen to you. We have to, we have to do something. It's very, like, easy to manipulate a crowd of people based on, on these fears. Um, and, you know, that goes back to kind of Bernays and the, the Bernaysian manipulation of, uh, of people's emotions and, and their psyche. Uh, and so, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it's, it's, it's hard to know if you're not completely informed you know, kind of as, as Elliot was saying, um, if you haven't really been paying attention too much, when these big explosive events come along, it's like people don't know how to react because they've been primed to just be afraid. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. There's Stout, a, uh... Oh, go ahead, Erica, please. Oh, I was just going to say Martha Stout talks about that, that exact thing in her book, The Paranoia Switch. And uh, how terror rewires our brain and shapes our behavior. And um, it's really quite interesting. Um, I just recently watched a video at uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard Bookstore back in 2007. And um, she basically just said our national consciousness has been geared to a heightened experience of fear and anxiety in our daily lives suffering from a collective PTSD and we have altered our behavior and our reactions to both events in our own personal lives and on the world stage. It explains both profound emotional and biological changes and what we can do to break free from this cycle of fear. So it's that idea of, of switching, you know, that in, in people's consciousness this fear reaction, and then people tend to shut down, right? They want to block it out, you know, like uh, Doug was saying and others, you know, um, in the U.S., you know, we we go to our jobs or we we experience daily life. We don't see these kinds of things. And then until we do, and and then how do you deal with it? You just shut it out. Do you you not address the situation? Mm -hmm. You know, it really, it, it is frightening, but at the same time, having awareness about what you're experiencing. I mean, like Tiffany shared, I feel the same way. You get so inundated by what's going on and things don't affect you like they did, say, a few years ago. But just being witness to it and knowing it. So when these major events happen, you kind of are looking for all the other aspects of of how you're being controlled and manipulated by the media, mm-hmm. you know. I mean, you really saw that on Facebook where everyone was changing their Facebook profile to the French flag. And, you know, it, it was like people just got on board 
and they didn't really know the information or or what what else was going on, how they were being manipulated, mm-hmm. and and really feeding that 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 paranoia switch. That makes sense. That that traumatic memory repeating over and over. Well, that's one of the important things about staying on top of what's happening in the world anyway, because you kind of reduce that cognitive dissonance. So I can imagine how confused people would be if they don't know what's going on and they see all these cop beating videos and yet they hear, you know, God bless our cops and we're here to protect and serve or, you know, liberty, galaxy and fraternity and, you know, freedom and democracy and yet you're living in a police state and you kind of know that on one level, but you really don't have the words to express it or you can't kind of get over that. So if you stay on top of things, I mean, some people will think it's depressing to read bad news all the time, but at least you know why things are happening and you're not just wondering and confused and fearful. Well, yeah, you're better equipped um, to deal with with um, with situations that could arise in the future. And um and instead of I mean you, you can you can sort of um you can work from a more objective um narrative of what's what's actually likely going to happen in certain situations and what um what to look out for, how to protect yourself and actually be a service to other people in that sense. Because this is what it, it comes down to, um, I would say, is that by by keeping um by trying to gain as much awareness of your environment um and of your internal environment as well you can um essentially equip yourself with um with the relevant skills to be able to help others who um who are not equipped with that knowledge you know exactly Martha Stout talks about how when we're frightened we give up logic values rights for a perceived safety, and the way we perceive safety is by being loyal to those who claim they are going to protect us or keep us safe. You know. Well, hey guys, we have a uh, a caller. Um, hi, caller. Welcome to the Health and Wellness Show. Uh, what's your first name and where are you calling from? Hey, this is Andrew. I'm calling from Africa. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, hey, Hello, Andrew. Andrew. Hey, welcome. A uh, very good topic, uh, very important because, um, yes, obviously everybody's being manipulated by various external infl- influences all the time. And uh, it's very sad because, um, you know, with the right kind of education, as you just mentioned, and uh, information to be able to change things, people could really change. But um, it seems like there's a chronic lack of knowing what to do. Like a lot of us are sitting around, like sort of that are awake even. We're looking at what's going on, um, but we're not actually actively able to um, extract ourselves from the situation in in the sense of actually building networks or um, building the types of education programs that will be necessary to change the perception of the greater consciousness, uh, the mass consciousness. So like Mm. as an example, I was just watching the... um, the riots in, 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 in South Africa last month on YouTube uh, with all the student protests, and they're demanding education. So here you have all these people, and apparently there's a communist influence in the, ide- in the ideology there, uh, from what I can see. Um, you know, it's just interesting that that happens to always play a very 
strong role, and I'm reminded of Alex mm. Jones mentioning uh, during his 9-11 uh, documentary, his coverage of the um, 2004 elections, where he says, you know, communism is capitalism's counter-revolutionary control valve. And then you've got all these people demanding an education from the state. And it's like, first of all, the state never educated you properly to begin with. They're, they're demanding mm. university-level education. Secondly, <laughs> the university-level education that you're going to be getting is nowhere near what you actually need to understand the trivium, to understand what you really need to be able to survive in this world. So here you've got mm. all these people demanding, you know, and meanwhile, a few blocks down, you've got the uh, Reserve Bank building and you've got other interesting buildings that are all actually the real source of the problem, but they're all outside Parliament, which is like the Senate. They're all fighting there to say, we, we demand you give us a lower cost to be able to pay for our education. I'm like, can anyone say fractional reserve banking? Like, when will people get it, you know, and how do we educate people to go to the core issues uh, as opposed to trying to demand for their own enslavement? They're literally fighting the police for their own enslavement. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> I think that's a really good point. That's what I mean. Uh, yeah, I think that kind of speaks to our our topic as well today. That um, you know <clears throat> what the the means and methods of of staying sane in, in the world that is increasingly insane. Uh, the mm-hmm. I, one of the main root methods I, I think is, is self education and pursuing uh, through through whatever means necessary um, the path of of educating yourself learning from uh, any of the resources that are around you and uh, from the experiences uh, in your life. And that doesn't mean uh, necessarily, you know, having a, a university at your disposal. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily even mean the Internet, although the Internet can be a really great tool for that. Uh, it just means having a, in my opinion, it, it means having a, um, a spirit of openness uh, and a, a sense of, of wonder uh, and the ability to uh, take your own mind, you know, in, take the reins for your own mind and for what you think and what your opinions are uh, and what your actions are. And, yeah, it, I think it's a symptom of the authoritarian follower personality, Andrew, what you're talking about, um, that, that people want to be uh, given things. You know, now there, there is certainly in some cases there's an argument to be made for um, providing of, of resources by powers, you know, if the powers are going to be there, then they should take care of their people. Uh, yet the, uh, the the kind of epidemic of people expecting that to happen, I think, has, mm-hmm. has definitely been a problem. Yeah, and also not important. realizing... Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, go ahead. I, I was in a... Sorry, I, I was in a protest uh, years ago, uh, not because I was part of the protest, but I was just taking photographs of it. And, uh, you know, there were these people, once again, demanding education, saying, well, you still haven't built us a school. And I'm thinking, do you realize how lucky you are that your kids are not going through school? Now, <laughs> hear me out. Okay. Number one, yes. Okay, we do need to understand our ABCs and the basics of language and basic mathematics. But after sort of like, you know, grade one, two, and three, it really gets terrible because it becomes full-on indoctrination and, and very sort of, uh, you know, let's see if we can get the Pavlov's dog, dog uh, experience going. For, I mean, they want all the kids to regurgitate, excuse my, my harsh language, but to be able to parrot back to them, you know, not to be able to gauge whether or not they can think for themselves or be innovative, mm-hmm. but simply to be able to make sure that those kids are never going to question authority, come up with alternatives to authority if it's corrupt. That's what, what school's all about, right? So 
you know, how do you how do you tell these people that that really think that the government's going to come and save them? The go those who who govern their minds and who govern their lives and who exploit them at every turn. How do you get people to realize that? Because on the other hand, you've got the, the here. There's two major ideologies in South Africa that I'm seeing at the moment. It's it's the uh, you know, and then you've got like the you've got the two wings of you have the left and the right of the of so-called democracy, uh, which is like communism light. It's like a socialist democracy, and then you've got hardcore communism. And mm. uh, you know, on both sides, people are saying, "Well, you know, government's going to provide for us. Government's going to provide for us." And the communists are like, "No, we need to take this government down so that our guys will be really benevolent towards you." You know, it's like history shows it never works. How do we get people yeah. to realize that they're just not going to be able to do anything better than becoming self-reliant? If your community, your little community, can become self-reliant, but how do we? Um, uh, get people to start thinking that way. That, that's what I'm racking my brain on because I try to strike up conversations with the average person and they've already worked their nine to five. And by the time we get to the evening, the person says, I don't have any energy for this. I don't want to have to think about it. I don't want to have to know about it. And it's not just yeah. cognitive dissonance. It's just being so tired that you're like, you know what? I'm so ready to just, you know, turn on the uh, television so I can get my emotional uh, dose of, of different emotions from a television because I never speak to my family. So I'm just going to see what the elite's <laughs> going to provide for me, you know, with this opiate. Um, <laughs> how do we jump out of this? That's what I'm trying to say. You yeah. know, I'm just trying to figure out if you guys have got some ideas. Well, that's I wonder, if I may. Stout wrote that book, The Paranoia Switch, yeah. was, you know, she said that she thought people knew how frightened they were. And um, as a nation, at least here in the U.S. and, and across the world, and that she was surprised when she realized people aren't really aware that they're being played, that they're being manipulated, that it's literally a war for their mind. And at the same time, this is not the type of information that you can, you can't shove anything down anybody's throat. If they're not open to hearing anything, then they're just not open to hearing it. And you have to be externally considerate towards other people and what they want to talk about. You can't force them into things, but at the same time, there's, small things that you can do, like if you're on social media, you can share important articles or make posts about things that are important to you and see if yeah. somebody wants some more information. And if they do, then that's the time that you can share. Yeah. That's very I understand where you're coming from, Andrew, like people fighting for their enslavement and demanding schools, and they really don't know how lucky they are. Like there's the authoritarian follower-type personality who think that school is the only place where learning takes place. And really, that's just life. You can learn doing a number of things and learn them much, much better than sitting in a classroom all day long. Right. Well, I think um, the big question is – sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, if I may, um, that <clears throat> I think uh, fostering individual connections uh, is a is a big uh way to or a, a valid way to approach this uh, because as Tiffany said you can't force anything down people's throat and oftentimes if you do uh, they will retract and they'll pull away from that um, and you know not all of us have the resources to start you know like a, a media network like like signs of the times mm -hmm. sott.net uh, which which we involve ourselves with quite a bit um, but in, in the sense of uh, getting out there in the world and uh, fostering connections and friendships with people on an individual basis so that when it comes up at a certain point, uh, if, if they don't ask, 
um, you know, or if they're not open to it, then you can't you can't shove it down their throat. But uh, if they do, uh, and if it comes up in a conversation, when you have that one-on-one personal connection with another person, um, you can be much more effective in saying, "Here, look at this. Look at yeah. that. Uh, yeah. This is what I think about how we should learn. What do you think about the school system? If so, why?" Uh, and have those really deep discussions and debates with people. But I, I really think the only way it's going to spread uh, is, is on that individual level so that you have a modicum of, uh, of trust uh, between two people so mm-hmm. that that discussion can take place. Because if I walk up to somebody on the street, and I totally agree with you about that, about education, and be like, do you know the education system is a sham, that nobody's getting educated, they're all getting schooled, um, you know, this is to make good workers and citizens, not free-thinking people. If I just say that to somebody on the street, they're going to be like, okay, all right, go, you know, get away from me. Um, but if <laughs> yeah. I have that, if I have that same conversation with a friend of mine, they they may be more more open to be like, well, why do you think that? You know? mm-hmm. We have right. to keep in mind, uh, people, uh, uh, that. Sorry, I was just going to mention that we have to keep in mind that. Like 50% of the population have the personality personality type that makes them predisposed to be authoritarian followers. So, you know, no matter your good intentions, you know, there's always going to be a certain part of the population who will want that state education, so to speak. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. I was going to say it just seems as if almost like uh, you have to kind of uh, realize that just some people. Well, the the crux of the matter is that the school system does create order followers, um, and and I mean it's twelve years of indoctrination on average, or more, mm. uh, and and that is like a really hard thing to break because it's the formative years. Like I think it was the Jesuits that said, "Give me a child until they're five or six, and they'll never, never leave the church, and they'll never disobey <laughs> orders." Uh, so so it's kind of interesting how uh, that obviously with Jesuits as well being very much involved, like how that process seems to have spawned out into the rest of the Western, so-called Western world. And, 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 um, to try and like, sort of, it's almost like you've got to start with this next generation. And I think micro groups or, or people that can, uh, you know, formulate their own community networks where, you, you know, mm-hmm. it doesn't even have to be people that are geographically living very close to each other, but if people can form their own business networks or their own, um, what you might call intelligence networks, uh, I think you're going to maybe see things like microfinance um, and uh, different types of, uh, well, you might even just say organizations that uh, start emerging where they sort of float on top of all this mess. And you're going to continue to have the masses that, you might know, you can go up to, I've been, I've, I've walked up to people to try to say to them, you know, what do you think about, um, you know, well, yeah, pick your facts, the, the stuff that people don't want to hear. And the average person, you know, will, will probably be very confused, like you just said, or think that you're crazy. Uh, some of them might take notice, but but like you just said, if we can't have regular meetings and have regular uh, discussions, meals with each other, um, working to, together with, during the day, uh, like something like Iceland. I mean, Iceland's people, generally they work together and they've got a specific kind of culture and they've got a specific agenda and they're small enough to be a cohesive group, but not uh, so small that they can easily be attacked by, you know, whoever it might be that wants to attack them. And that's why they've managed to do what they've done. And I think that, like, if 100,000 people or, like, uh, you know, just, like, uh, it might be um, even just 10,000 families in a particular region of the United States, maybe just one state, got together and said, right, let's do things differently, then we'd start to see 
uh, this emergence of, of people living sort of free from the, or le- less, less, uh, let's just say, less dependent on the system. Yeah, I think one one antidote to this uh, insane world and kind of to what you were talking about there, small groups, communication meetings, uh, is compassion, uh, which a lot of people are, are losing, and they may not want to admit that, um, <clears throat> and they may not be consciously becoming less compassionate, but it's through the programming that our society has um, that that is actually taking place. And I, I think, you know, if you're interested in people, um, then be interested in them. And, and when you make a friend, mm-hmm. say, hey, uh, you know, you seem like a person I would jive with, and let's grab a coffee and let's sit down and talk. And instead of like uh, at the outset, you may be tempted, and I am often tempted to do this and be like, wow, ah, this is all of what I think about the world, you know, and just throw it at them. Uh, instead, <laughs> be like, you know, what, what, do you, what do you do for a living and how did you get there? Or how did you grow up and what, have you, what are your experiences? And have compassion for that person's situation in life and what their experiences are and what their opinions are. Um, have a reasonable discussion with them. Establish that mode of trust and then um, begin to say what you think about things, you know, and, and then through yeah. those kind of connections, you know, a, a group of, of 10 yeah. people who are compassionate and understanding and have trust in each other and are on the same wavelength are much more powerful than a group of two or 300 people who don't know each other, you know, uh, and okay. it's, it's what we see. That's what we see in our, in our communities these days, especially in the United States where I live. Um, nobody knows your neighbors anymore. You know, like they, I, I even, right. I, I hate to admit it, but I, I have neighbors who I've never talked to since I moved into this house. And then that's really unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and so it's on me to to uh, to change that situation as well. Uh, it's it's not on them or anybody else. So if everybody took that kind of individual responsibility, and I'm not trying to preach on a soapbox because, like I said, I'm liable. Um, but I I mm-hmm. am aware that that is that that is the case. You know, and that uh, maybe this conversation will prompt me to go say hi to my neighbor after the show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that like community growth is a great opportunity, and to have the emotional intelligence. Because I certainly uh, sometimes fall short of that. <laughs> That's an understatement. But um, you know, to be able to understand, uh, okay, if I connect with someone, it doesn't make me responsible for them. But we doing as much as we can to be responsible in our community. Because a lot of people don't want to have to take the responsibility to have to deal with any repercussions that may come from having to deal with you know just someone that's in their geographical location. If you make an enemy in your geographical location where you live, that's for the long term. Uh, if somebody disagrees mm-hmm. with you mm-hmm. or if there's a fallout, that's why I think a lot of people tend to be very private these days because, you know, if somebody gets their back up against the wall or disagrees with you on something, you know, it can scale out of proportion and the the whole court system, et cetera, uh, really feeds off of that and actually encourages people to fight with each other. So it's a very dangerous or very difficult thing in some cases. But uh, also, you know, that needs to be balanced with, I suppose, wisdom to say, okay, how do I take the right amount of responsibility in our community to be able to connect with people and at the same time know I'm not responsible for somebody else's opinion? Uh, how do we protect ourselves? Um, like, you know, even though this legal system, many would say that it's just a fiction, although it, it implements real things in, in, in our reality, people say, well, it's, it's, it's illegitimate. But the reality is that there's millions of people that believe in it. So uh, therefore, you know, it's like uh, um, almost as if belief makes right. Um, mm-hmm. So... So unfortunately, we have to be cautious of how we approach people in our communities 
uh, not to come across as discriminating in any way, et cetera, et cetera. But because mm-hmm. people can very easily take things out of context. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, that's the one aspect. And then the other thing was Max Egan recently, um, he was actually speaking on the France uh, attacks and he's a very big activist in terms of Palestine and, and rights for people. And, you know, he was saying, you know, if you don't have any better solution to offer someone, don't really rather just don't even tell them about the chaos because or if you don't have a positive to bring along with the chaos uh then don't even mention it perhaps because people are going to react to how obviously yes how we approach them and um you know he's the guy that's kind of saying don't burn your passport you know you still need something because you don't have a better alternative to that passport currently mm-hmm. um so yeah that was that made a lot of sense uh and i think that that's kind of closer to what we should be doing um yeah rather than it's difficult though it's very easy it's very easy to call into this radio show uh because it's so anonymous right <laughs> and mm-hmm. we should we should like I mean, if you guys would be willing to do, to do like a, a maybe 15 20 minute segment if people could just call in every week and just say this is what I did in my community this week that would be so awesome mm. mm-hmm. yeah. yeah i mean and that's uh Again, just to loop back to like to help us stay on the on the topic of the show. That's that's a great um, practice, I think. You know, because uh, the the insane world uh, that we're talking about, uh, one of the major factors of that is splitting people apart, um, destroying communal connections, um, makes people feel more isolated. Uh, at which point, you you have no uh, feedback mechanism, you know, for the doubts and uncertainties that you have in the world. Um, and again, yeah, people are much stronger in a community uh, than they are alone. And you know, the whole "no man is an island" it's a cliche, but it's true. Mm-hmm. Well, Andrew, I think uh, if it's all right, I think we're going to let you go. I really appreciate your call. Um, thank you. And we're gonna thank you very in, much. We're going to move into the uh, topic. Yeah, thank you. Appreciate you calling in. Thanks, thanks, thank you. Guys. thanks. Thanks. Well, that was well, that's great. A very good yeah. Yeah. No. Go ahead. <laughs> Go ahead. But I was just going to say that it's a very good point. You know, people that are isolated and scared, they're more vulnerable and they're more easy to manipulate. You know, so it's like a war for our minds, you know, and our very soul. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. exactly. Yeah. I can say from personal experience um, when you're in a state of fear, um, you almost feel disconnected from 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 uh, everyone else who's who's around you. You know, you you don't have you don't feel like you have uh, even the energy to be able to speak to anyone because you think, oh, you know, are they going to be a terrorist? <laughs> <laughs> I know that's a bit uh, right. that's a bit extreme, but that's that's actually that's actually what um what a lot of people um are going through right now, especially since um since this France attack. Um, I think I think the the terrorism thing it, it's the fear that um, I guess it's uh, it's the uh, the divide and conquer method you know the fear is 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 really good for that. Yeah, I, it, that's a great point, and I mean it, it's a really sad situation. I mean uh, to your, to your point now, you know people have been programmed to look sideways at an Arabic man in an airport. You know, mm-hmm. and they, they're going to do that subconsciously, no matter what. And it's the same thing as I think you know in the uh, the 40s, 50s, and uh, and 60s, where you know white people looked sideways at an African American in a restaurant. 
you know, and that, mm-hmm. you know, the, we've had yeah. these examples of groups being split apart and and, um, and mistrust being fomented between them when, uh, you know, <laughs> I, hate, I hate that some of these things have become cliches, but like the whole we are the world mm-hmm. thing, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it, it, but it's true. Like if we could just look at other people as people, as humans, and um, say, okay, all right, I don't know who you are yet. I don't know whether you're dangerous or safe or anything like that. So I do have some uncertainty, but I'm not going to be afraid uh, to get to know this person because of, of biases that have been programmed into me. If we could get over that step, um, we might have a, you know, a better chance at, 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 at fomenting some sanity instead of some insanity. Yeah, and that is one of the uh, powers that be modus operandi really in the divide and conquer scheme is to paint the other as non-human or an animal or you know something to be feared and not trusted. So you have to just realize that all of that is just a lie. I mean, there are some people who are animals and cannot be trusted, but you know. You can't go around, you know, living your life as if everyone is like that and totally isolating yourself. You're going to have to get out there and try to connect with people. Keep in the back of your mind that some people can be psychopaths and authoritarian followers and study as much as you can on that, but you're going to still have to, if you really want to try to make a difference with other people and be helpful with other people and form a community, you're, you're going to have to, you know, get out there and meet people. And get to know them. Yeah. yeah. There was a really interesting article actually um, posted uh, on the 14th of November uh, called "Let Sympathy Lead to Action." Uh, originally, mm-hmm. it came from the uh, the uh, website "The Art of Manliness," which is a really uh, interesting site that people should check out. Actually, it's got some really great information up there. Uh, written by Brett, uh, sorry, Brett and Kate McKay. Um, and it's basically the, the, the idea behind it is that like it's very natural to have these kinds of uh, reactions when something big like the like the Paris attacks happens that's all over the media, um, and you have this very kind of strong um, emotional response. And they're saying that 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 you know that's an affir- affirmation of the best of our humanity. You know, to feel this kind of emotional response, to feel sympathy, to feel anger, to feel um, you know incensed by by this kind of. Uh, uh, information coming to you, but they say that what uh, that that has to lead to some sort of action, and that by not acting mm-hmm. on that, you actually are are uh, being uh, disingenuous with uh, with your emotion. And they even go so far as to say that you don't have a right to experience that emotion if you don't if it doesn't uh, compel you to do something about it. They, they actually have a really interesting uh, quote from William Barclay, and I'll just read it here. He says, there is nothing more dangerous than the repeated experiencing of a fine emotion with no attempt to put it into action. It is, in fact, it is a fact that every time we feel a, gener- a generous impulse without taking action, we become less likely ever to take action. In a sense, it is true to say that we have no right to feel sympathy unless we at least attempt to put that sympathy into action. An, an emotion is not something in which to luxuriate. It is something which, at the cost of effort and of toil, and of discipline and of sacrifice must be turned into the stuff of life. So I, I just found that really interesting because, you know, you see in the wake of this, uh, of, of the Paris attacks, you know, all these people who are changing, you know, putting a filter on their Facebook photo to the France flag and, you know, posting all these, these other kinds of things. And it's kind of like, 
that's like an easy way to kind of dissipate that emotion without actually doing anything. I mean, changing a filter on Facebook mm-hmm. is not doing anything. It really, it yeah. really is, is like less than nothing, you know. It's basically like it's going along with the crowd. It's like, oh, this is, this is what's trendy right now, so I, I'm going to go along with the crowd and kind of put this, this uh, Facebook filter on. But I mean, you know, I'm not obviously like the 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 type of action you take is very important. And you know, you see in the wake of the uh, the Paris attack, things like people burning uh, the uh, the refugee camps and things like that, and obviously acting out in a very unthinking, automatic kind of. Uh, you know, taking this anger and channeling it into a very negative uh, uh, channel. Um, mm. But I think that, you know, taking these emotions, this anger, this sympathy, these sorts of things, and, and doing something like, like trying, like, like we've been talking about, you know, connecting with people out there, discussing it, networking, saying what's really going on here, or, you know, doing something like spreading information. It's, you know, the media is encouraging people to think about this in a negative way. Well, what's, what's the, or, you know, obviously it's not really a positive spin you can put on this, but, you know, what's, what's the bigger picture here? What can we really be looking at and, and saying, you know, realizing that these, uh, these refugees are humans, you know, that they mm-hmm. are not responsible for what a small group has done, you know, and what can we do, you know, discussing what we can do to actually, you know, help the situation um, instead of just reacting. So anyway, I thought yeah. that was a very interesting article. Yeah, sympathy without yeah. action is pretty much it's just lip service. In a lot of ways, it's pretty phony, especially the selective empathy. Like people mm-hmm. express all this sympathy with the victims of the Paris attack, which they do deserve your sympathy, but also the people in Yemen, the people in Egypt and Libya and Iraq and Afghanistan and Pakistan mm-hmm. and Palestine and all of those <laughs> other places that the U.S. has bombed. They deserve your sympathy, too. In many of the cases, I mean, it's not possible for the average person to go over and lend a hand or volunteer in a hospital or help refugees in any direct way. But if you say you're so sympathetic to what is going on, other people suffering in the world, and on the way to your job you step over three homeless people, what good is Mm -hmm. that? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think think even just um, just – just the fact of acknowledging it as it is, I think mm-hmm. that's um, that could be said said to be doing something about it, you know, because um, when there's when there's so much confusion spread by mainstream sources, um, just the very act of learning about it, um, that to some extent is uh, it's going to put you in a better position. Position, you know, I'm not going to lie, like I got um, I got quite frustrated. Uh, it was about the um, it was just after the Paris attack and um, uh, my newsfeed on, on Facebook was just absolutely flooded with um, with people's pictures with the um, with the Paris well no with the French flag on it you know the um, like the, uh, the the colors and um, yeah to some, it really it really um, frustrated me I think it's mainly because um, it's, it's the selective empathy, and I think it's that people genuinely believe that doing something like changing your profile picture is um, is a is proof that they care, is proof of their their sympathy for those for those others. But what I think it kind of comes down to is um, is more it's it, it's more like okay. Um, when this happens in Palestine, when this happens in Afghanistan, Iraq, Yemen, 
Uh, that's far away. Those people are... Um, it's almost like the dehumanization thing, you know? It's like they're over there and that's not affecting me, therefore I'm not bothered about that. But then when it's so close to home, it's kind of like, uh, okay, that could have been me and therefore I'm going to show those guys sympathy. I think it's it's quite a selfish thing that's going on, you know? Mm. Mm. It is. But at the and same so time, great I mean, about... we can't really fault those people. You know, because like we've been saying, you know, people aren't overly informed about this kind of thing. They only, you know, they're not told about. I mean, that that whole attack in uh, in, in Lebanon was not um, publicized on on North American media at all. So no, I mean, most people no. don't actually know about it. Um, so you know, you can't. We can't really expect them to to express sympathy when they don't know. You know, it's so on the one hand, it's easy to get angry, and like I've seen a few kind of uh, arguments erupt on Facebook about the whole. Um, you know, changing of the filter and stuff. But, you know, it, it, that's kind of like fighting a symptom, like trying to go head-to-head with, with people. And, you know, why aren't you expressing sympathy about this other stuff? Like, it, you, can't, you can't really fault these people for it. It's more like a symptom of, of the overall ignorance that's going on. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, well, it creates, it creates cognitive dissonance in people to admit those things like Tiffany uh, mentioned, you know, all these countries that the United States is bombing. <clears throat> and uh, when people in the United States, and, and obviously in other countries as well, but the U.S. is a particularly poignant example right now, have um, a sense of kind of nationalist pride, you know, USA, USA kind of feeling, um, which, again, I, I'm with you, Doug, on that. I think you can't necessarily fault them for that because uh, in, in the same way, and I may sound a little harsh by saying this, but you can't fault a, a computer for doing what it's programmed to do um, mm. You know, uh, people are, are programmed yeah. to react a certain way. And when you present them with alternate information and when you say, uh, because they identify emotionally with their country, with their nation, uh, when you say, you know, do you realize how many people the United States military has killed? Innocent people, women, children, old old people, and, it, you know, even, yes, even fighting age males who are not fighters, who are innocent. Um, all of these people, ten, tens, literally tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people just in the last few years that have been killed mm-hmm. by the United States military and by operations that the United States has, has sponsored. Um, when you present people with that information, there's such a cognitive dissonance because to them that means it's them. You know, if that's my country, then it's me. And there's no way I would support that kind of violence. Uh, so it must yeah. not be true. You know, I cannot right. believe, I, I can't believe that my leaders would do something like that. Um, and it's that it's that hump of cannot believe it um, that prevents people mm-hmm. from accepting that information and then and then being able to process it in a healthy way. Um, and so that's where I, I come back to what I was talking about with with Andrew, which is this uh, one-on-one interpersonal connection method of spreading information. Because, again, too, if we use Facebook as an example, if I make a post on Facebook about all of the things that I just said, uh, there might be some people that agree with me who will like it and say, yeah, that's true, you know. Um, And then other people will see it and be like, well, he's just crazy and there's no way that we would do that. Uh, And so you never get a a chance to actually suss out the topic or discuss it with anyone. And that's that's what it takes. Um, You know, we've we're, we're basically having like an emotional food fight, just throwing our opinions at each other uh, and nobody's mm-hmm. processing them. 
Um, yeah. So and not right. not just opinions too, but objective fact. Like the stuff that I said about how many people have died at the hands of the United States military. That is an objective fact, whether you like it or not. Um, mm. the, the the problem is it's being it's being processed as an opinion. Like, well, it's just your opinion that the military has killed that many people. Like, no, it's not. No, um, no, but it's how not. do we talk? You realize you realize the tragedy. Like, you know, it's official. You know, millions of people have died thanks to the war and terrorism, and yeah. it's been paid with tax dollars. You know, that normal people pay these taxes and this money goes for that war. You know, and these are facts. You know. It's just a tragedy that people just don't realize how, you know, by their very ignorance, they are cooperating with these evil, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and again, and kind of like Doug said, and I, I don't know if this is exactly what you were saying, but until the point at which people actively deny that fact, where they see the truth, they are presented with it, they process it, and they still deny it, at that point, then I believe that they're at fault. But up until that point, at which point they don't have access to the information, they're they're kind of not at fault. They're they're doing what they're programmed to do, and they may be hindered by a number of other factors, like we've talked about before. You know, diet, media programming, um, you know, imbalance of neurochemicals that don't allow you to think properly. All of these things factor into how people process information. And if they can't process it, then then they can't process it, and then we're you know we're we're stuck. I guess it comes down to um having compassion for where where people are it, it it's not um it's not compassion it's become frustrated and then you know outrip on facebook saying you know you're not this and you're not that and you should know this and you should know that when in fact like as you just said you know um different people um they can't be blamed for not knowing something that they don't have access to you know to some extent is that what you're trying to say Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, you know, and the, the, there still are cases too where, and I've run into this with people in my past who we were like looking at something online, and you know, you show them like the you show them the proof of what of the situation that's going on, and they go, oh well, I just don't think about that kind of thing. Then, then mm-hmm. I think that that person is at, at fault for actively denying the truth. You know. Yeah. But it's complicated. It is complicated because then you get into the, you know, what what people have, you know, the actual capacity to take on. Um, You know, you can't necessarily fault an individual who is, you know, of the authoritarian follower type personality. Um, You know, you can't just kind of expect them to kind of drop everything that they've been raised with and programmed with. Like, uh, you know, let's be honest here, like the the media and everything is actually, um, you know, using kind of, psychological tricks to um, channel people's um, uh, thoughts in a very particular direction. So, you know, it, it, you, to, to expect somebody to just kind of on, on the spot kind of drop that and, and take on this new information and kind of work with it, uh, it might be too, too much to ask um, of certain people. Um, but, you know, I, I think that, you know, if you, you maintain awareness and kind of um, kind of really, like Elliot was saying, sort of empathize with the person and, and see where they actually are coming from, you know, several conversations, you can drop little hints here and there and kind of like gauge people, see where they're at. And, uh, you know, if, if somebody is kind of, of, of um, you know, the, the personality type where they could actually take this sort of thing on, then maybe you can go a little bit deeper with things and, and, and kind of move on. And in a way, also, yeah. you have to kind of be the type of person that 
you know, sets an example for other people. Um, you have to be the compassionate, uh, caring, uh, helpful uh, person who stays calm and is not run by fear. And if you set that example for somebody, maybe somebody might ask you, hey, how are you keeping it all together when all this crap is going around? And that'll be another yeah. chance for you to, you know, kind of share some information. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, let's, let's talk a little bit now, and I guess we kind of have been, um, but let's get into a little bit of the nitty-gritty about what what can be done, you know, on a personal level. Um, you know, so our topic is mental health in an insane world. So I guess, you know, the logical conclusion, our goal is to say, how can I retain my mental health in this insane world? Um, <clears throat> and I think one of those things, um, like we, we presented a number of points, uh, compassion, interaction, um, things like that, uh, this brings me to an article uh, that's up on SOT here that was actually uh, from Medical News Today uh, called Knowing Me, Myself, and I, What Psychology Can Contribute to Self-Knowledge. Um, so I'll just read a couple excerpts uh, from here. Um, this is how well do you know yourself? It's a question many of us struggle with as we try to figure out how close we are to who we actually want to be. In a new report in Perspectives on Psychological Science, a journal of the Association for Psychological Science, psychologist Timothy D. Wilson from the University of Virginia describes theories behind self-knowledge, that is, how people form beliefs about themselves. Sykes challenges uh, psychologists uh, encounter, Sykes challenges that psychologists encounter while studying it and offers ways that we can get to know ourselves a little better. Um, so uh, there are a number of theories that aim to describe self-knowledge by a dual process model, putting the unconscious against the conscious. Wilson notes that these theories are pessimistic in that they view the unconscious as something that cannot be breached. However, he remarks that self-knowledge is less a matter of careful introspection than of becoming an excellent observer of oneself. Uh, Wilson suggests there are some ways that can help us learn more about ourselves, such as really attempting to be objective when considering our behaviors and trying to see ourselves through the eyes of other people. And I think that that's a really important point. Uh, you know, it, it's, uh, <clears throat> I think part of the reason that we have a lot of these issues, and I'm not trying to pin it just on the uh, the New Age movement, but I will cite the New Age movement in saying that, uh, you know, it's been promoted that you just need to introspect, you just need to kind of meditate, you just need to get in a certain state of mind, you know, be zen, be chill, dude, that kind of thing, um, doesn't include a really harsh, objective observation of yourself, of your actions, and of your beliefs, and then uh, taking matters into your own hands to correct uh, any imbalances that you might see. Um, you basically are just supposed to get into a zen state of mind and then everything will kind of, you know, fix itself. And I think that the, a, a promulgation of those ideas is what has led us to a point where, where people don't, by and large, don't know how to observe their own actions. Um, and I know for me, uh, when I encountered this, this information some 10 years ago now, um, you know, and I'm obviously I'm not like a master of this, but it's taken that much time. It, it took me at least, I would say five years to just be able to say, mm -hmm. Holy crap. I just observed myself from a different point of view. And, and while mm -hmm. I am not proud of what I just did, like, it, it took a long time to just be able to do that separation and say, I'm actually observing my actions from this kind of external point of view. 
and not just self-identifying uh, with my own opinions. And so mm-hmm. that's, I think, another, you know, another solution to this, um, this, you know, mental health issue in the modern world is um, not getting caught up in self-identifying with your own personality, with your own ego, but being, and, and not just like denying the ego either uh, in a new agey sort of way, but in, in a really critical, objective way, being able to look at yourself and, and note down observations and then approach them from a practical perspective. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, and I think, uh, you know, that gets into the, um, the, a lot of the esoteric work of people like uh, Gurdjieff and Ospensky and uh, um, mm-hmm. Tomeda to a certain extent, uh, the, this idea, you know, that the, the whole, the whole uh, maxim of know thyself you know, people kind of take that on a very um, uh, sort of peripheral uh, view of that. Oh, know myself. Okay. Um, but, you know, it really is something that requires a lot of work. And, um, you know, it really is, you know, bringing it back to the topic at hand, it really does take a lot of work on the self to not get caught up in these kind of psychological mind games that, uh, that we're surrounded with all the time. It's so easy to get caught up in the channels that have been pre-prepared and, uh and uh, encouraged, promoted, um, in order to vent those uh, emotions that you naturally have from from the, the different things that are going on in the world. So it really does take a lot of, uh, of of self work to kind of realize, wait a second, I'm actually getting caught up in this. I'm very identified with this movement all of a sudden, um, you know. And it 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 isn't necessarily the um, the best use of your energy. So yeah, I I, I think I think you, you stated it quite well. It also brings up the idea of that confirmation bias. There was an article mm. on site called Confirmation Bias or Why Being Wrong Feels So Right. And there was actually a study from the University of Iowa that finds once people reach a conclusion, they aren't likely to change their minds. Even mm. when new information shows their initial belief is likely wrong. Mm. You know, so it's that uh, internal struggle and, and being open. Mm. Like, being able to look at all different sides of a topic and, you know, be prepared to be wrong about what your initial, um, you know, idea was, whether it's diet or, you know, this regime of exercise or that, and we've talked about that in previous shows. Um, There's also the book, You're Not So Smart, by David Mm. McRaney, and they talk about confirmation bias in there, and how your opinions are, are the result of years of paying attention to information that confirmed what you believe while ignoring the information that challenged your uh, preconceived notions. And basically mm-hmm. that confirmation bias is like seeing through a filter, you know, seeing the world through a filter. Mm-hmm. The real trouble begins when confirmation bias dictates your active pursuit of facts. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. had an interesting little uh, paragraph in the book that I'd like to share. Uh, Terry Pratchett through the character Lord Veterani from his truth, a novel of uh, Discworld. Be careful. People like to be told what they already know. Remember that. They get uncomfortable when you tell them new things. New things, mm. well, new things aren't what they expect. In short, what people think they want is news, but what they really want is old. Mm. Not news, but old. Telling people that what they think they already know is true. Mm-hmm. Mm. Right. Yeah. 
And that right there gets down to why, you know, people, um, what, what we've been talking about, why people run into this problem where when they are trying to present new information to people, um, you know, give people a wider perspective on world events, um, how much resistance they actually encounter. Um, yeah. You know, it, it just, you know, it, it's kind of our inbuilt psychology um, mm -hmm. and, you know, which is, which is obviously exploited in a lot of ways. Um, so, it, you know, to, to get out of that mode, to not, um, you know, stay in the, uh, the popular opinion, it, it takes a lot of self-work. There is a lot of cognitive dissonance involved in that. You know, how easy is it to just not, you know, post something, ah, you know what, I, I think people won't react very well to this, so I'm, I'm just going to not post mm -hmm. it. Um, you know, it is, it, it takes work. Yeah, it is very hard work. And also makes me think too of like, it's very hard to keep your head together during trauma, you know, and I, I don't know if all of us have had similar, I'm sure a lot of our listeners too have had similar experiences. I mean, everybody experiences some kind of trauma in their life. Um, and I'm sure you can relate to that moment. If you look back and try to imagine yourself, in that moment when it was happening, it's it's extremely hard to stay focused um, and to mm -hmm. essentially stay strong when you're being traumatized. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> it takes a lot of uh, uh, practice and a lot of real effort to, like, pull out of that. Um, mm -hmm. And unfortunately, like, where, where we are in modern society, kind of how we've been talking, we're in a constant state of trauma. We're in a constant state of psychological trauma. They kind of like the, uh, we mentioned the, the shock doctrine, um, you know, and that's a, that's a very effective ploy by the powers that be to shock people into a state of uh, susceptibility. Um, it's it's mm -hmm. essentially a, a hypnosis technique at its core. Um mm -hmm. And so it, it it really does, like, this is not to say, like, you should just go out and be able to keep your head together during any situation tomorrow. Um, you know, it's not going to work that way. It takes a lot of work, um, and it's very hard. And so that's where we also need to, as we've mentioned, kind of have compassion for people who may not have encountered some of those ideas um, mm -hmm. because, you know, they they are, and very understandably so, going to fall apart during a traumatic situation. Uh, generally. Mm -hmm. um, so next yeah, and when you keep getting traumatized over and over and over, you know, it doesn't really rally you. It scares you. Mm -hmm. And then you become introverted and, and as we talked about, mm -hmm. isolated. And then yeah. you, you can't really address legitimate fears. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you no, there's a, term in, there's a term in psychology that, uh, called the amygdala hijack. And it's basically the idea that the you know the amygdala is uh, is is what's responsible for produ producing um, emotions or or responding to the external environment in an emotional way. And when something very strong and very traumatic happens to you, it just kind of takes over, and then your access to kind of any sort of higher reasoning um, is is effectively shut off. So mm -hmm. you basically are in this state of reaction. You don't have the ability mm -hmm. to. To, to kind of consider things from multiple angles or, you know, everything becomes very black and white, bad, not bad. And uh, in that state, you know, anybody who's offering a solution or anybody who would mm -hmm. seem like they're on top of the situation suddenly becomes the, you know, the, the good, um, you know, the not bad in the situation. So people very easily will latch onto that. So, yeah, recognizing that in yourself, recognizing when you are in that state, which does take a long 
uh, concerted effort at self-observation uh, really does um, kind of get you, it, you, it's like an escape valve from the uh, from the channels that that kind of exist that want to, to filter everything into into very particular channels. So recognizing that this is a part of our human biology, you know, this isn't something that you can just shut off. This is how you're going to react. You will. Um, but the idea that you know through self observation you can maybe be aware when you're in that kind of situation and maybe just not make any rash decisions, or you know when you do have a moment of quiet after everything has has gone down. You know, reassess. Uh, you know, try and calm yourself down. The Aerolis uh, breathing program is very good for this, for getting you out of that reaction um, state, the uh, the uh, black and white thinking, and kind of really uh, open up your perspective and kind of see what's what's going on. Yeah, I, I think too um, uh, that that kind of self work and observation during a traumatic situation. It doesn't necessarily. It doesn't mean just suppressing your emotions, like stoicism or no. stoicism's sake. You know, um, it, 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 part of that is uh, processing your emotions in a healthy way. So it's not just like something bad happens. I'm going to be a rock. I'm going to be super strong mm-hmm. right now. You know, and nothing can affect me. It, it, you know, if you need to weep or you need to cry or you need to shout into a pillow or you know go to the junkyard and break something with a bat, you know those kind mm-hmm. of things like. <laughs> Like process it out um, and and deal with it, um, and don't just like shove it down. Uh, it's it's a very kind of precarious balance, I think, um, and that's exactly what makes it so hard. Mm-hmm. And also, if you think about it, it's an integral part of true healing. You know, how to process our emotions, how to connect to our true emotions, to see the world around us as it is, not as how, as we would wish it to be, you know. For me, it's like an integral part of healing that so often is missed. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also Another way to refer- heal yourself oh, ahead, also sir. is to actually help people. Like people who have been through some kind of trauma, um, after they've gotten through it, they often go into that same field and help other people who are dealing with the same thing. So a good way to kind of process your emotions and not just have lip service to being sympathetic to people is to actually help some people and not just with small things like how helpful are you around the house? You know, do you do things without being asked? Do you do things that are asked of you? When they're asked of you and not waiting and not doing it with, you know, you know, kind of grumbling underneath your breath. I mean, are you helping somebody with a cheerful heart and are you standing up for them? You know, you can do the small things. I mean, if you can't even do the small things, how are you going to help somebody when it really, really, really counts? Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I think that's a really good point. I mean, it's 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 difficult when, you know, kind of when you're, you know, excuse the language, but when you're going through your own shit, basically, and you're really um, not in a, a place of kind of psychological balance and, you know, you're under a lot of stress or whatever it is. And, you know, we're talking about trauma, but, you know, like Jonathan said, this can this can manifest in a lot of different ways. You might just be going through a very stressful period in your life. Um, it's not necessarily tied to kind of world catastrophe on, on any level. It might just be, um, you know, you're going through a divorce or you're going through a move or something like that. You're under uh, kind of a, a, you're in a traumatic place. And to try and kind of, instead of dwelling on that sort of thing and really kind of, you know, getting into a self-sympathy type mode and, 
and uh, that sort of thing and, and really just kind of like sitting around and dwelling to get out of that mindset and really kind of put your focus onto helping other people can be incredibly rewarding and incredibly uh, psychologically balancing in a lot of ways. It just gets you out of your own stuck place, like stuck in the mud. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of brings me back to uh, the idea of community that we were talking about earlier. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, here, uh, this is also another tenant of that kind of uh, self-work um, and referring to an article that we have here in our notes, uh, studies suggest that others may know us better than we know ourselves. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, how many times have, have any of us had that pointed out to us where you're doing something that you can't see until somebody says, hey, do you realize that you're doing X? You know, and you're like, no. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's some uh, uh, some interesting um, points in this article. So uh, here, like, for example, uh, the self is better at judging friends' intelligence than its own because it's not that threatening to us to admit that our friends aren't brilliant, but it's more threatening Mm -hmm. to admit to ourselves that we're not brilliant. Uh, Mm -hmm. Take attractiveness in your mirror. We look in the mirror all the time, yet that's not the same as looking at a photo of someone else. Uh, If we spent as much time looking at photos of others as we do ourselves, we'd form a much more confident and clear impression of the other's attractiveness than we would have of our own. Yet after looking at the mirror for five minutes, we're still left wondering, am I attractive or not, and still have no Mm -hmm. clue. And it's not the case that we all assume that we're beautiful, right? This is what this article says. So uh, continuing on, for some personality traits, the author says that we miss the point if we look at thoughts and feelings and ignore the behavior. Uh, Bullies, for instance, fit the uh, SOKA model, which I'm sorry, I'm missing that acronym, uh, Self-Other Knowledge Asymmetry, SOKA, because their thoughts and feelings tell them that they're insecure and want to be liked and admired, which is not a horrible, nasty notion. They cannot see their behavior as nasty and horrible, though, because their thoughts obscure their actions. Uh, So this goes to that point of, like, um, being able to observe yourself from an external perspective uh, is, I mean, we are programmed to do the exact opposite. We're programmed to react at a base level to the emotions and opinions that we have in our own heads. However, in Mm -hmm. a community situation, when you're in tight and close with other people and you are able to, uh, you know, not have your ego bruise uh, very easily, you're able to take some criticism, then the other people in that community can say, hey, this is what I see in you. Do you see that? And if you don't see it, then take their take their feedback and take that into your model of learning about yourself, you know, and continue on from there. Um, I think that's a very effective method, but also very difficult because, like I said, we're we're all programmed to do the exact opposite. Um, just like people, you know, in the United States are programmed to be nationalistic and patriotic, you know. But mm-hmm. when we get feedback from, uh, you know, people from the Middle East or from China or Russia or South America or wherever else outside of our country that say your country's kind of an asshole, you know, <laughs> and that that's a light way to put it. You know, it's actually like a very psychopathic regime. So I'm I'm being light-hearted there, I guess. But um, you know, it's hard for us to take that criticism because we cannot generally observe our own self-identified emotions. Um, so it, it takes a lot of uh, work and help from other people to be able to do that. 
Yeah. And we can take it even down to a kind of a more microscopic level just in your own life. And this is something that I've encountered a few times. Um, well, more than a few times, actually. But it's the kind of thing where I'll be in kind of a social situation and I'll be t- saying something and I think, I think that I'm being funny, right? I'll be saying, you know, I don't even know an example. But, you know, just going off on, on some sort of tangent where I, I think that I'm being humorous. And it's like, it, it, you know, it's very easy to just kind of stay in that and you kind of leave that situation don't think anything more about it. But if you kind of pay attention to the reactions that you're getting, you know, in some situations, I mean, being, I remember being quite shocked in one situation where I was kind of like suddenly realizing that I am not coming off as funny. And, you know, these people mm-hmm. are actually taking this more as a, uh, a, not necessarily an insult, but kind of like, okay, um, yeah, that, that uh, wasn't so funny. And it's kind of, you know, it can be shocking at the time because you're quite embarrassed by it and like, and, you know, just kind of shut up and kind of can end up just dwelling on that for a while. But it's the same kind of thing. I mean, you know, you, you can use the reactions of other people to kind of see what uh, you're completely identified with. Like in that situation, I was identified with, you know, my personality as funny guy Doug. And like, mm-hmm. meanwhile, that was that was actually not the case. It was probably more uh, like asshole Doug, like being a jerk <laughs> Doug. And, you know, it, 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 it kind of can be a, a bit shocking, but, you know, on a, a more macro scale, um, you can kind of look at the, the things like Jonathan was saying, like, you know, if you're really identified with nationalism, with your own kind of country and how great it is and everything like that. You know, you can, in, in t- talking with people who maybe are outside of your country or maybe have a better perspective on things, you can kind of say, wait a minute, I'm really actually caught up in this. I, I, I'm not seeing the information that these other people are seeing. So, it can, it, you know, working with others, I think, is a key to this. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep, <clears throat> for sure. Um, let's see here. I was just kind of looking through some of our notes. Um, uh, I wonder if it might uh, help us to take a second and look at the idea, the idea of uh, petty tyrants. Mm. Um, and, you know, we're talking about methods of how to stay sane in an insane world, um, how to change yourself, how to be able to deal with trauma. Um, there, there are a lot of different methods uh, that go into that, and uh, there are a lot of ways to address um, those kind of situations. So we've talked about, you know, community, self-observation, uh, connection, compassion, empathy, um, there's also another aspect of this, which is uh, it's a little bit masochistic, I guess you might put it that way, but not in a not in a not in a pathological way. Um, but uh, uh, our listeners may or may not be familiar with uh, the work of Carlos Castaneda um, and the character in his books uh, called Don Juan Matus. Um, and one of the ideas uh, that he presents in these in these books is the idea of a petty tyrant. Uh, and there are different levels of, of petty tyrants. Um, so I, I won't get super into detail about that, but essentially the idea is that a, a petty tyrant is someone who is a tyrant towards you in some way, an oppressor, a bully, an abuser, something like that, that you then take that abuse and utilize it to your own self-growth. Um, so instead of actually denying that, uh, you, you actually just take it in and utilize it to your advantage. And in those, in the Castaneda books, Don Juan says that everybody must have a petty tyrant. And if you lose one, then you have to find another one. 
uh, which mm-hmm. is kind of an intimidating idea. Um, <clears throat> but I think, you know, like Doug, you were talking about the macro scale, like uh, in our society today, we could consider this kind of psychopathic control system that we have over us as our petty tyrant. Um, yeah. And so the idea being to take the abuse that's dished out towards us and instead of saying, I, I, I'm so enslaved, you know, uh, I'm this or I'm that or I'm being abused or taken advantage of, which may be true. Um, but when you get to a point where you're able to process that, keep your head on straight and approach it from a different perspective, then you can say, I can use this oppression as a way to hone the, um, the control that I have over my, uh, my egoistic reactions. You know, mm-hmm. and my emotional reactions, my base kind of opinions that may get in the way of, of a rational approach to life. I can actually take that abuse um, and and have it make me stronger. It's kind of like, I guess, trial by fire is a, is a simple way to put it. Um, so I wonder if you guys have had any uh, experiences with petty tyrants where you were able to take that experience and use it to your advantage. I have. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, anything that we're comfortable talking about. Incy-wincy petty tyrant. Um, Children can be really good at that. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Just, um, you know, learning, like you said, Jonathan, to uh, be stronger. You know, I I just talk just about dealing with children, you know, who who tend to be very clear and observational and say things sometimes that you don't want to hear. And mm. um I found, you know, uh dealing with teenagers it it, it can it can really uh, unnerve you and it, it really builds I guess character would be a definition I'd use to mm. not mm. fall into the dynamic of arguing and trying to assert your false sense of self, but Mm -hmm. just letting it kind of percolate into your mind because with young children and even with teenagers and even young adults, this, the filter isn't as strong as, as when we get older, you know, so things just come out and, um, it's a, it's a big learning experience. And, uh, what I practiced was just letting the information come and sitting with it, um, mm-hmm. not trying to, you know, say, no, no, I didn't do that or I did mm-hmm. this, but just sitting with it and, and kind of ruminating about it and then realizing, yes, as much as I don't want to hear what this child has to say to me right now, she's pretty much spot on, you know, <laughs> and uh <laughs> It's hard to swallow, you know, especially when you're supposed to be the uh, the adult, quote unquote, mm-hmm. you know. So, um, I think there's a lot to be learned from that, and it's painful. It really is. So that's my little petty tyrant. I think what petty tyrants really are are good for is kind of showing us our own self importance and how caught up we are in our own self narratives. Um, you know, if you are, think of yourself as a take charge kind of person and then in a certain situation, um, you know, the petty tyrant is obviously the one in charge. You know, you, you, I guess petty tyrants are really good at kind of pressing our buttons. And mm-hmm. from that perspective, you kind of can um, get a better look at what your buttons actually are. You know, how is mm-hmm. this person manipulating me? Why, why am I so triggered by this person? What is, what is it about 
them that makes me react in this way. So it is, it, in, in a lot of ways, it's a great tool for self-observation, self-work, to really see yourself and see how you're reacting to these different situations. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, for um, sure. I, I find that, um, especially working with or encountering uh, moderate petty tyrants who um, tend to be to some level of authority um, and tend to sort of trigger uh, a parental sort of um, father-son relationship mm. sort of program. Uh, I'm not sure whether due to some trauma or or something like that from childhood, but um, but yeah, I, I <laughs> it's it's very difficult to fight against the tendency of um, of being very submissive to this authority mm. figure, you know, and I think that um, that that is something that I I tend to do quite a lot, and so so it it. It's uh, it, it's very interesting to to simply observe this this tendency and 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 try not to give into it, you know. But it's very difficult at the same time, and and you don't often get to see these aspects of yourself if you're not in the situation where you are subject to a petty tyrant, you know. Yeah. Yeah. I have a couple of uh, quotes here from from Castaneda, and I, I want to make clear for any of our listeners who might be really familiar with the history of Carlos Castaneda and how he turned out later in life, um, that we're kind of like digging pearls from swine here. Like the, the Castaneda series of books is quite good. There's a lot of very good information in there. Um, Castaneda himself turned out to be a very questionable character later in life, and so it's mm-hmm. like, you know, do you, do you listen? Do you not listen? Do you kind of go and pick out the truth from what he wrote and keep, you know, stay vigilant? Um, so I just wanted to point that out because I could, I, I could imagine somebody being like, you know, well, they're citing Castaneda, so that's, you know, I'm going to write that off. But please don't. Um, so uh, a couple of these quotes about petty tyrants that I thought were pretty good. Uh, Don Juan says, a petty tyrant is a tormentor, someone who either holds the power of life and death over warriors or simply annoys them to distraction. Nothing can temper the spirit of a warrior as much as the challenge of dealing with impossible people in positions of power. How much does that sound like where we are right now? Um, So he says, only under those conditions can warriors acquire the sobriety and serenity to stand the pressure of the unknowable. The perfect ingredient for the making of a superb seer is a petty tyrant with unlimited prerogatives. Seers have to go to extremes to find a worthy one. Most of the time they have to be satisfied with a very small fry. Then warriors develop a strategy using the four attributes of warriorship, control, discipline, forbearance, and timing. Uh, He says the idea of using petty tyrant uh, is not only for perfecting the warrior's spirit, but also for enjoyment and happiness. Even the worst tyrants can bring delight, provided, of course, that one is a warrior. The mistake average men make in confronting petty tyrants is not to have a strategy to fall back on. The fatal flaw is that average men take themselves too seriously. Their actions and feelings, as well as those of petty tyrants, are all important. Um, So just to repeat that, the fatal flaw is that average men take themselves too seriously. Uh, Warriors, on the other hand, not only have a well-thought-out strategy, but are free from self-importance. 
what restrains their self-importance is that they have understood that reality is an interpretation that we make. Petty tyrants take themselves with deadly seriousness while warriors do not. What usually exhausts us is the wear and tear on our self-importance. Any man who has an iota of pride is ripped apart by being made to feel worthless. Um, So I thought that that was really interesting that, you know, using control, discipline, forbearance, timing, and having a handle on your self-importance and not having all of your emotions and opinions and feelings being the most important thing in your mind, Um, Mm -hmm. but instead having a strategy with how to approach, like we've been saying, an insane world or traumatic situations, you can consider those situations as your petty tyrant. Uh, and so, as Doug said, you can you can use that um, to learn about your self-importance um, and basically learn from the suffering. Um, you know, suffering is a necessary part of of life. Uh, if we if we lived without suffering, I think in this world that we're in, we would never learn necessarily. Suffering is mm-hmm. what makes us learn. Mm-hmm. So, well. Uh, I guess we are kind of getting close to the end of our time here. Let me find uh, this segment. We have a pet health segment from Zoya today that sounds pretty interesting. Uh, it is about uh, pet mysteries uh, with some paranormal aspects, so I'm really curious what she has to, to share with us mm-hmm. today. So let's go to uh, to Zoya, and then when we come back, um, I have a recipe that's a, uh, a kind of a rerun. Uh, I want to do the, the chicken broth out of the Sally Fallon's book, Nourishing Traditions, because we're kind of entering into like the cold and flu season. Um, mm-hmm. So if anybody hasn't heard that yet, uh, stay tuned. We'll do that after this. Uh, so we'll be right back. Hello, and welcome to the Pet Health segment of the Health and Wellness Show. My name is Zoya, and today I'm going to talk about something mysterious. The other day, I read an interesting article that talked about a new survey uh, of more than 2,000 pet owners in the UK conducted by animal charity Blue Cross uh, that said that more than 30% of people believe their pets protect them from ghosts and spirits. Many pet owners reported that their dogs and cats alerted them uh, to a supernatural presence by barking, growling, or staring at nothing or by backing away from something that cannot be seen. Some respondents said their pet also displays flared neck fur when a spirit is nearby. Among all dog owners, around 25% said that they have seen their four-legged friend bark or stare at nothing at least three times during the past month. Around 25% of cat owners said they saw the feline hissing or growling at an empty space twice over the past four weeks, while other respondents said that they have seen their cat follow the invisible presence around the room with their eyes. Some respondents also reported seeing their pets behave oddly around areas where someone has died. But a pet's abilities may stretch further than fending off heinous spirits. They may also have psychic abilities. According to the survey results, many pet owners believe their animals can sense when a family member is heading home or when they are about to leave the house, as was described in the research by Rupert, Rupert uh, Sheldrake, for example. 
One of the previous pet health segments was dedicated specifically to this topic. Others said their pets know when it is time for dinner, while some said their animals can sense when a storm is on the horizon. Veterinarians say that pets can soon learn subtle changes in our behavior and the environment that alert them to something we are about to do, changes uh, to the atmosphere like a storm brewing. They are quick to learn a routine so they know when the owners are due home, when it's dinner time and when you are about to go out without them. But it's quite obvious and as was indicated by, by uh, Sheldrake's research that learning routine isn't all there is to it. What is more, around 75% of pet owners believe their animals can predict illness, uh, with one dog owner reporting that their canine friend alerted him to, uh, to a kidney infection by placing a ball on his stomach. Such a belief, however, is not so far-fetched with numerous studies uh, hailing the medical detection abilities of dogs. Last year, for example, a study talked about two highly trained dogs that were able to detect prostate cancer in urine samples with 98 accuracy, which has been attributed to the acute sense of smell. Dogs and cats uh, were the pets among which most psychic and ghostly experiences were reported in the survey, followed by rabbits, guinea pigs and horses. Overall, it seems our pets are more than just cute and cuddly. They may also have supernatural abilities uh, that may uh, protect us and our family or at least show that something is out there. Something to keep in mind next time your furry companion hisses or barks at an empty space. Speaking of barking or hissing at an invisible something, there are many mysterious and downright creepy examples in paranormal literature that talk about dogs exhibiting strange behavior when facing with unexplained. For example, in his book Missing 411, Davis Paulides talks how dogs play a major role in many of the disappearances. Sometimes the dogs disappear with a victim and are found later with a person. Other times dogs disappear and return home without the person. Sometimes dogs disappear and never found. Also bloodhounds, canines, can track scent. The dogs were given the person's scent via the worn shoe or shirt, for example, during the search, uh, search uh, rescue operations. They were brought to the location where the person was last seen, but they either refused to track or can't pick up a scent. This behavior happened so many times to ignore, though it's not understood why it occurs. John Keel, an investigator extraordinaire of the UFO and paranormal phenomena, talked about countless cases such as the one in New Jersey where pet dogs and cats in the, in the 70s were disappearing in large numbers. One area in Connecticut lost 700 dogs in a brief six-month period. Irate pet owners all over the Northeast were halting meetings and demanding government action. The popular theory was that organized gangs were stealing animals to sell to sinister laboratories for use in grisly tests and experiments. Investigators found, however, that such labs were few and they were able to get all the animals they needed free from pounds uh, and other legal sources. Some, something has always been slaughtering uh, our dogs, cats, horses and cows, as Kiel says. This slaughter is senseless and very mysterious. 
uh, these things are happening in every country on earth. But sometimes animals like dogs warned the victims, but they were suspected of being monstrous beasts themselves. According to Kill, huge dogs and cats of unknown origin have appeared and reappeared frequently all over this world, spreading terror and nurturing superstition in their wake. There are numerous documented accounts of these apparitions in medieval histories, but such events continue to persist to this day. England has suffered periodic outbreaks of these monsters, but so have the civilized, sophisticated uh, climbs of Connecticut and Michigan. In many of these incidents, the creatures somehow materialized during violent thunderstorms. There is another kind of phantom cat also, uh, which occasionally appears and disappears suddenly, even in heavily populated areas. This one is huge in size, resembling somewhat a little black panther. It has turned up in many places where panthers were and are unknown. Uh, for example, England, uh, that is considered to be pantherless, has had a number of sightings of this beast over the years. There are countless other examples of mysterious animals and beasts of all shades and sizes and levels of creepiness and there is a very high chance that your pet can see them. Please understand, I'm not saying it to scare you, but it does make me wonder about old superstitions like, for example, when moving into a new home, always let the cat enter first for good luck. Or, for example, in 16th century Italy, uh, people believed that if a black cat lay on the bed of a sick man, he would die. However, they also believed that a cat will not remain in a house where someone is about to die. If the family cat refuses to stay indoors, this was a bad omen. Well, this is it for today. Hope you found the information interesting. Have a nice day and goodbye. <laughs> it's such a spooky topic to have those jokes going at the end. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Well, that was cool. I can definitely say I've had a similar experience with my cat watching something invisible moving around the room. It's kind of creepy. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, yeah, that was fascinating. Thanks, sir. Uh, we are approaching the end of our time here. Um, so uh, time to wrap up with a recipe. And we have done this one before, uh, but it was a while back. Um and so I figured it'd be good to revisit uh, because uh, winter is coming. Uh, for some people, including myself, it's already here. And uh, mm -hmm. so begins the <clears throat> kind of cold and flu season. Uh, so I'm going to do Chicken Stock. Now, this is out of uh, Nourishing Traditions, which is a book by Sally Fallon uh, that we have referenced quite a few times. It, it's a great book. It, it's huge. Um there's a lot of stuff in here. I mean, I I haven't read through the whole thing. I, honestly, I'm not even sure if I if I could. Uh, but it's uh, <laughs> you know basically like there's a really good index, uh, and uh, it's been extremely useful for referencing a lot of things. Um, so it's a cookbook and a reference book. Um, mm -hmm. I'll just read you a little excerpt here. Uh, Sally Fallon says, "Why is chicken soup superior to all the things we have? Even more relaxing than Tylenol." Uh, it is because chicken soup has a natural ingredient which feeds, repairs, and calms the mucus lining in the small intestine. 
This inner lining is the beginning or ending of the nervous system. It is easily pulled away from the intestine through too many laxatives, too many food additives, and parasites. Chicken soup heals the nerves, improves digestion, reduces allergies, relaxes, and gives strength. Uh, and actually, I'm sorry, that was a quote from a different book. It's in this book, but it's a quote from Ageless Remedies from Mother's Kitchen by Hannah Kroger. Um, so the ingredients here, one whole free-range chicken or two to three pounds of bony chicken parts, such as necks, backs, breastbones, and wings. Um, so when you do this, don't ignore the gizzards. They usually come, like, inside the chicken in a little plastic bag. I don't know how they come elsewhere, but for us, that's we get this... Uh, chicken that's from an Amish farm called Gerber's um, and it's a you know, hormone antibiotic free and uh, the, the gizzards come in a little plastic bag in the cavity so uh, mm-hmm. take those out make sure you include them in, in the recipe because there's a lot of nutrients in there um, also the feet uh, can be used that might be kind of a turn off to some people but if you have chicken feet put them, put them in there uh, they contain a lot of uh, gelatin and other things which I'm not readily remembering, but I know gelatin. Mm-hmm. Um, so also uh, four quarts of, of cold filtered water, two tablespoons of vinegar, one large onion, coarsely chopped, two carrots, peeled and coarsely mm-hmm. chopped, three celery sticks, coarsely chopped, and one bunch of parsley. Uh, and the description here says, if you're using a whole chicken, cut off the wings and remove the neck fat glands and the gizzards from the cavity, by all means, use chicken feet if you can find them. They are full gelatin. Uh, Jewish folklore considers the addition of chicken feet to the secret to a successful broth. Even better, use a whole chicken with the head on. Uh, these may be found in oriental markets. Farm-raised, free-range chickens give the best results. Many battery-raised chickens will not produce a stock that gels. Cut chicken parts into several pieces. Uh, if you're using a whole chicken, remove the neck and wings and cut them into several pieces. Place chicken or chicken pieces in a large stainless steel pot with water, vinegar, and all vegetables except parsley. Let stand for 30 minutes to one hour. Then bring to a boil and remove the scum that rises to the top. Reduce the heat, cover, and simmer for anywhere from 6 to 24 hours. The longer you cook the stock, the richer and more flavorful it will be. About 10 minutes before finishing the stock, add the parsley. Uh, this will impart additional mineral ions to the broth. Remove whole chicken or pieces with a slotted spoon. If you're using a whole chicken, let cool and remove chicken meat from the carcass. Reserve for other uses such as chicken salads, enchiladas, sandwiches, or curries. The skin and smaller bones, which will be very soft, uh, may be given to your dog or cat. Now, personally, I disagree with that, although... It says it here, um, I generally think getting raw, raw chicken bones to your animals is the best way to go. Um, however, if they have been boiled, uh, perhaps that's different. I don't know if you guys can speak to that. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, can, I can imagine that boiling them would make them much softer than, than roasting, obviously. Um, so, And then it says strain the stock into a large bowl and reserve in the refrigerator until the fat rises to the top and congeals. Skim off this fat and reserve the stock in covered containers in your refrigerator or freezer. Uh, again, I would say, like, uh, you know, use the fat. Um, if you're going to skim it mm-hmm. off, keep it for some other use. Otherwise, mm-hmm. just mix it back in um, would be would be my opinion. Uh, every time I make chicken stock, that's what I do. Uh, take it out, you know, warm it up, and make sure to mix the fat back in with the stock. Um, mm-hmm. And this is really handy uh, for a lot of different things. And you can also spice it up with a lot of different um 
spices, uh, sometimes a little pinch of uh, cumin and coriander works really nice in there. Also, uh, clove and cinnamon, but in very small amounts, um, makes a nice uh, kind of wintry broth. So mm-hmm. that is uh, chicken stock. I don't know if you guys made any of that recently. Oh, that makes a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. We just, mm-hmm. we just made some yesterday, and I did sort of a Caesar soup chicken stock mixture, so I added um, mm. butter and uh, coconut milk and then mixed mm. that up with some other vegetables and the chicken meat, and it came out really good. Mm. Great. Yeah. All right, well, that's our, our show for today. Uh, we'd like to thank our listeners and our chat participants, and a uh, big thank you to our caller, uh, Andrew. We don't get callers very much, so we really appreciate that when people call in. Um, be sure to... Uh, to tune in to the other two shows on the SOT Radio Network, uh, The Truth Perspective, tomorrow at 2 p.m. Eastern and Behind the Headlines on Sunday at 2 p.m. Eastern. Always very good shows, so check those out. Um, and we will be back next Friday with a new topic. Um, I had mentioned last week that we were going to cover iodine this week, which obviously we did not do. Uh, we're waiting on a guest, uh, and so we're kind of trying to figure out right now when a good time will be, so we will keep you tuned on that. Uh, and let you know when that show is going to be coming up. So thanks again, everybody, and uh, we'll see you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, Bye guys.